Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now... A couple of weeks back, you might remember that we talked to the commentator Mark Stein, and he was talking about how culture drives politics. And that one thing that, for example, conservatives have not been very good at was influencing culture in any way. So I have been kind of talking with a, a number of different people on how to discuss culture and, and how a great fiction, a great cinematography, great poetry, great music can influence culture and in a really positive way. And one author that I think really exemplifies that is, is a woman named Lois Lowry. I read her books growing up, especially the book Number of the Stars about the Holocaust. I really had really had an impact on me when I read it in fourth or fifth grade. Uh, but many of you may recognize the name Lois Lowry because a film based on one of her most famous books came out this year called uh, The Giver. And The Giver is just a really fascinating dystopian book that I think is one of the first major dystopian children's books. I've I've read, for example, a Veronica Roth series, The Divergent Books. I took a look at those. I thought they were quite good, but I don't think any of the dystopian novels that have come out in the last several years in any way approach uh, the depth or the, the, the philosophical uh, meaning that The Giver provides. And, and, and The Giver is just is a book that's unambiguous enough uh, that most viewers can find something, most viewers and readers can find something to like about at the same time, really does challenge your thinking no matter what side of the spectrum uh, you fall on. And that's what I think the real strength of that book is. So I'm very pleased to have uh, Lois Lowry with me on the program today just to give you a little bit of background on her. She was uh, born in 1937. She's credited with more than 30 children's books and has also written her own autobiography. And uh, interestingly enough, the two books that come up the most often, Number of the Stars and The Giver, uh, one were being written in 1990 and the other in 1994, both won Newbery Medals, which is a very prestigious award that's uh, only given to the, the very best and the most highly qualified of children's books. She has tackled all sorts of very difficult topics like murder, like the Holocaust, uh, like racism, and, and of course in The Giver, a, a whole array of, of, of issues about the future and what we want the future to look like and, and what we're willing to sort of uh, trade for safety and security, which I think uh, this book covers in, in a really, really extraordinary way. So uh, Lois Lowry joins me for uh, a fascinating conversation on uh, her book, The Giver, uh, what she thought of the film, and what sort of lessons we can learn from her work. The first question that I've heard a lot is, what gave you the idea for the book The Giver? It's it's been used as a as a book in in school classrooms across North America. It's been made into a big film. So, what originally gave you the idea for this well, book? Well, it was a long time ago. I think the book was published in nineteen, probably ninety three, which means that I wrote it in ninety two, and at that time, my father, uh, who lived to be ninety two. Uh, at that time was very old and was in a nursing home. And I would fly down to visit him about every six weeks. Uh, he was in Virginia. I lived in And one time when I went down there, uh, I, I took out a photograph album to look at with him because at, at that age his memory was starting to fail. But 
pictures would, uh, photographs would bring back memories that we could talk about. And there were cars that he had loved, houses we had lived in, we had lived all over the world. And on this particular visit, I turned to a page where there was a photograph of two little girls, me and my sister. We were three years apart in age, and in this photograph we were toddlers. And he smiled and looked at it, and he said, there you are with your sister. And then he looked a little embarrassed and said, I can't remember her name. And I said her name was Helen, Dad. She was named for her grandmother. And he said, whatever happened to her? And I had to tell him she died, Dad, because my sister had died in her 20s, long time before. And he had simply forgotten. So he was uh, startled by that. Startled is not the wrong word. Shocked and uh-huh. saddened by that. And I turned the page, and we went on to other things, other conversations. But after a few minutes, not very long, there was a picture of two teenage girls laughing. And he smiled again and said, oh, there you are with Helen. And then he said, I can't remember what happened to her. And I had to say again, she died, Dad. So when I was driving back to the airport that day, I began to think about memory and and how it might be a kind of comfortable and, and convenient thing if we could simply forget every bad thing that had ever happened to us, the way my father had forgotten the death of his first child. And when a writer begins thinking like that, thinking something that begins, what if, uh, of course a story starts to take shape. And, and it wasn't very long in my own thinking until I realized it would not be a good thing. But already I had the beginning place uh, for a story that then had to be set in the future. So Uh we couldn't yet do that. I had never been a writer of either fantasy or science fiction, nor even a reader of those genres in particular. But suddenly I was going to do a book that was set in the future, and that's the book that became The Giver. And it began with the concept of the manipulation of human memory. Well, you've written one of these very rare books that, you know, all different types of people have managed to extrapolate their own ideas onto. I'm sure you're aware that uh, the book has gotten censored in some places. and, and when yeah, you... It covers a broad spectrum. Some people hate it. Some people love it. Some people uh, of all kinds of political and religious beliefs think that it, it uh, portrays their personal beliefs. Uh, and it's interesting because... Uh, it seems to be all things to all people, and maybe that's what a book should be. I don't know. Was this book just based on a, on almost a, a thought experiment that you were doing on the loss of memory, or did any of your political views play into it? I didn't intend to have any of my own political or re- religious views uh, in the book. I suppose uh, subconsciously things find their way into what one writes, but certainly that was never my intent, and I've been actually gratified to find that people of all persuasions uh, seem to find their own beliefs represented in the book. Uh, I think, uh, you know, a piece of fiction is one thing to the writer, and then it becomes often something else to the reader. And every reader brings their own set of values and beliefs to what they read. And, And that means that if if a thousand people read a book, they read a thousand different books. I kind of like that. It's one way in which a, a book is different from a, a movie, which sets things forth more concretely for the person who's watching it, as opposed to the reader who brings his or her own imagination. 
Mm-hmm. The book has been compared to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which I think most people would be considered a compliment, but Aldous Huxley's Brave New World was a deliberately social commentary, whereas as your book may not have been. What do you think of that comparison? Well, I am 77 years old, and I read Brave New World when I was 17. <laughs> so <laughs> it's been a very long time, 60 years, and, and I'm not going to remember it well enough to comment on it, but I, I majored in, in English in college at age 17, and that's when I read both Brave New World and 1984, the Orwell book. And those were the two classic dystopian novels. And I suppose both they both were making political statements, mm-hmm. I think, as was Animal Farm, uh, also Orwell. Um, but uh, in the intervening years, by 1992 or whenever I wrote The Giver, I had long since put those books out of my mind. Uh, and yet, of course, things lurk and linger in your brain. So so that was there. But I would not now be able to recapitulate the, either the plot or the intention or the political importance of any of those books. You said that you, this was the first book you wrote that was really, you know, a dystopian, a futuristic book. But since then, there's there's been quite a number of books that have come out uh, yeah. that very strongly resemble yours. I think of of the Hunger Games, and even more closely, I think the Divergent series by Veronica Roth very uh, closely yeah. resembles what you tried to accomplish. It, 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 it Do you happened? I, I don't know how that came about. There was a there were an intervening few years, and then suddenly these dystopian books began to appear. And the two you've mentioned, uh, the Veronica Roth and uh, Suzanne Collins, um, those are the two that stand out. But but aside from those, there are just hundreds out there now. Apparently, young readers are interested in that genre, and so publishing is, is churning them out. I think it's a trend, and, and like all trends, it will end, and something new will take its place. And like all writers, I wish I knew what the next new thing would be because right. it's a great one. But uh, right now, dystopian literature is very hot. And they say that The Giver was the first dystopian novel for young people. I have no way of verifying that, but mm-hmm. that may may well be true. Yes, I've, I've seen the New York Times and the Washington Post have mm-hmm. both attributed uh, that to you, that you wrote the first one specifically designed for children. And you seem to have written a lot of books oriented towards children, and I think that if you look at um, how much children's literature impacts people even years later, that obviously by writing a a youth novel, a teen novel, a children's novel, you can impact someone far into their adulthood. Which of of your books do you think has impacted um, adults the most? For example, I always remember your Number of the Stars book, which I read in in fifth grade. I would would have replied to you. But I think it's because Number of the Stars and The Giver are the two that are used in, in schools, at least in the United States, probably Canada, <laughs> and uh, and very likely in, in a number of other countries, since they're both translated into other languages. So those are the ones that kids read under the guidance and supervision of teachers and probably discuss and debate uh, although I think Number of the Stars is less likely to provoke debate, uh, but it, it does evoke passions on the part uh-huh. of young readers. And so those are the two that stick with people and have been around for a long time. And now many of those people are old enough that they have children of their own who are reading those books, particularly Number of the Stars, which was published in 1989. So they've had a very, very long life. And a meaningful one, I think. 
I would agree with that. The Number of the Stars book, uh, when you read it in, in fourth or fifth grade, you very much uh, try to put yourself in the shoes of, of the character of that book as, as she suffers through uh, through the Holocaust. And it just it helps you to realize that there's a, a big and scary world outside of yourself that you've been blessed not to, to experience. And, and also, speaking still of Number of the Stars, it helps kids realize, I think, an important thing, that even in that worst of all possible times and circumstances, there were decent people who rose up with great humanity. And one would like to think that that would always be true. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that, that message also resonates in, in The Giver. When did you first hear uh, that they wanted to turn uh, The Giver into a film? Um, the Giver, as I say, was published probably in 1992, and it was not terribly long after that, probably after it, it was awarded the Newbery Medal in 1994. That was published in 93. Uh, Jeff Bridges acquired the rights, the movie rights to it, because he wanted to make a movie that would star his father. He wanted to direct it. He had never directed a film. His father, Lloyd Bridges, was a very distinguished actor, and so that was the intent. But, of course, movies require a lot of things to fall into place, primarily a lot of money. Uh And uh, that never happened. And eventually Lloyd Bridges died. Uh, his son Jeff kept renewing the option, kept hoping to make that film, and then after probably 18 years, suddenly the other things fell into place. People came forward with the funding, uh, and and by now Jeff himself was old enough to play the role. So that's when, I mean, I had long since given up hope that that movie would ever be made when suddenly I got the call that, that they were going to do it. Uh, and and Jeff himself played played the title role. What did you think of the film when it came out? I know that writers often have mixed feelings about these film manifestations of of their of their works, especially because they're they're often quite attached uh, to their yes. works. Uh, over the years, I had read probably six different screenplays that had been commissioned, and uh, so they always included me, uh, although my contract with them did not. That did not require them to do so. They were very gracious in including me. And so when finally they decided to make the film and they showed me the screenplay that they were going to use, uh, they then sought my advice throughout the process. The director emailed me sometimes two and three times a day just for little bits of information, for input. And sometimes he took my advice and sometimes he ignored it. They did... uh, have me come to South Africa where they were filming, so I watched some of the filming take place. I only went for a week, and they were there for several months. Some of the decisions they made uh, I took issue with, uh, and sometimes I came around to their point of view. For example, they decided to make the three child characters who were 12 in the book, the boy and his two best friends, to make them older. Hmm. And I cringed at that. Um, But they explained a couple of things. One, that market research shows that teenagers won't go to a movie about 12-year-olds, and so we would have lost the whole teenage audience. Uh, And two, this is purely practical and financial, but if you use a child actor, you can only work them, as they say, for uh, a a short period of time each day. Right. And it would have doubled the length of time to shoot the movie, and it would have way overrun uh, the budget. So by casting people who were older, they were able to work longer hours. 
And when I saw the first scenes that they had shot of the kids, I realized it didn't matter because given the way the children in that community are brought up uh, in a highly restricted world, they appear, even at age 17 or 18, to be as naive and unsophisticated as 12-year-olds. And so it seemed to work for me. I asked them, please, not to interject a teenage romance. (laughs) And uh, they tried not to, but they did, I think, uh, put a little more of it in than I would have hoped. It does, however, make sense that when the teenage boy, beginning to experience feelings for the first time, would experience romantic feelings toward this very lovely friend he has who is a girl. So uh-huh. that that made sense to me. Uh, I, I just wish they had toned the romance down a little bit. On the whole, I think they did uh, a good job of trying to uh, convey the, the themes of the book. Uh, I think uh, there are many moments in the film that are very moving. And there are two things that I thought in the film were better than the book. One was the role of the chief elder, played by Meryl Streep in the movie, uh-huh. is a much more complex uh, and interesting uh, character than she was in the book, where she just fulfills a function and disappears. Right. Uh, because they had Meryl Streep, of course, they made the role uh, uh, much more complex, and, and I liked that. The other thing was, uh, given the visual medium, I thought they did a remarkable job, which I couldn't do in the book, Uh, of portraying the memories that the boy receives. Uh, In particular, I remember gasping, watching it for the first time, when late in the movie, when the boy uh, has told the giver that he's going to leave, the giver says to him something like, "I'll, I'll I'll try to give you memories of strength and courage, and puts his hands on the boy. And, and and then what you see is a series of remarkable images, which includes the iconic image of the young man standing in front of the tanks in Tiananmen Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just gasped when I saw that. Uh, that is not in the book. The book uh, the book images are are uh, less less uh, striking than than uh, they're able to do with those visual images on the screen. I love that part. You write youth fiction, and a lot of there's been a lot of complaints in in recent years about how much people read. Here in Canada, for example, the average kid gets about six and a half hours of screen time. Mark Bauerlein of Emory University recently wrote a book called "The Dumbest Generation," complaining about how we never read. Uh, I've emailed back and forth with with Michael Tolkien a bit, uh, the grandson of J.R. Tolkien, and he's complained that everyone watches Lord of the Rings and no one reads it. Uh, from somebody who you know is is known for being a, a children's fiction author and from someone whose books have sold very well, what, what do you have to say about about that analysis? Well, I I think there's an element of truth to it. I have grandchildren spending most of their recreational time with with screen things, uh, you know, video games and iPod touches and all of that, as opposed to the way I spent my childhood, curled up with a book. Uh, And yet, books are being used in schools, and uh, I have not noticed any decline in, in the sales of my books, and those are the only figures that I'm privy to. Uh, But uh, certainly it's a time when kids have become, they they require faster-paced entertainment, I think. And they would not sit still any longer, I don't think, for the very slow 
novels that I read when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And so I think authors have had to adjust to that. Uh, I've tried to write uh, things with a faster pace and a little more suspense just to hold the interest of the kid who has a, a number of different things tugging at him and all those distractions. You touched on, on the thing I was going to ask you next, actually. What type of books did you grow up reading? Well, there was not uh, as much wonderful children's literature in my childhood as there is now. And what I read tended to veer between classics, which in which I would include, for example, a book called The Secret Garden, which mm. was published in 1911. My book. mother read it as a child. Uh, I read it as a child, and my daughters read it uh, as children. I don't think today's kids would sit still for it. It's very slow going. I also read, as a child, some popular series books that had absolutely nothing in them of literary merit. I'm speaking now of something called The Bobsy Twins, uh, perhaps to a lesser degree Nancy Drew. Uh, The Bobsy Twins, in particular, if you reread them, are very racist and sexist. Uh, But at any rate, I didn't uh, discriminate as a child. I read all of those things, plus the British series Mary Poppins, which... My kids never read because they'd seen the movie. Right. Uh, and that's what happens nowadays. But at any rate, I was a very introverted child, um, a very solitary child, and, and quite a voracious reader. And I graduated early on from so-called children's books to books that were published for adults but which had a child protagonist. And I remember specifically uh, one called The Yearling. Uh, another called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Those uh-huh. were books that my mother was reading, but that I picked up because they had a young protagonist. These days, those books would be published, if they would be published at all, for uh, by a, a children's publisher. They would be published for so-called young adults. But there was no such genre then. Well, one final question is: is as we as we mentioned earlier, your, your book has has had people, especially the giver, both the book and the film, have had people grappling with huge numbers of you know more philosophical ideas, like what the role of government is, you know, memory, um, what, whether or not we can trade off things like uh, peace and security uh, for the loss of uh, of passion and, and goodwill. Yeah. Um, it's had people struggling with issues, uh, you know, as varied as, as euthanasia and abortion, uh, and had people on both sides discussing reproductive technology. Uh, that is the beauty of a, of a book that allows people to grapple with these different issues, regardless of how they grapple with them. Do you think that in order to have to write more fast-paced novels and, and to try to attract the attention of, of a generation whose attention span is increasingly short, that we, we've lost something somewhere in the process? Well, I think as long as we can uh, use our talents, those of us who write in particular for young people, even knowing that we have to make our books more fast-paced, grab the reader more quickly, if we can use our gifts to still present those issues, uh, which I think we can, uh, most of us, uh, then I think our job is done. I think to put those things out there for discussion, and, and certainly I've seen The Giver, both both book and, and movie, uh, do that, uh, that kids come away, kids who might not have thought about such issues come away uh, newly uh, invigorated by, by talking about things that are important for discussion. And the question you, you raised, I think the big question that the book raises is uh, what, what we should sacrifice for our freedom. Uh, and, and that's something that, that we need to discuss and to be aware of. Cause, cause, and today's kids are the ones who are going to be 
making the laws in the future. So I think books uh, can play an important role in that. Paul Lois Lowry, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Lois Lowry, the author of Number the Stars, author of The Giver, and many other children's books. If you haven't read Number the Stars or or you haven't read The Giver, even if you're an adult, I'd encourage you to go out and buy those books. Both of them are are really wonderful and have very profound lessons uh, to share. And I, I think that this conversation, what I'd really like everyone to think about is how uh, the arts can influence culture in a really positive and meaningful way and, and how things like The Giver and things like Number of the Stars and other novels and books of this type can influence the way we think in, in a positive way and help us grapple with deep questions that uh, too many people of our generation and in our age seem to be loathe uh, to grapple with. So I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in again this week. We hope you come in again uh, next week. I'm Jonathan Van Maren. Thanks for listening and have a